0: Thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. Reformed churches are sometimes accused of being rather stoic in their worship. Some might accuse a Reformed church as being one that quenches the Holy Spirit. Is this claim really fair? Do Reformed people really desire to quench the Holy Spirit? Why do Reformed people have such a high view of the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments? Does the Lord really work through such means? Please join us and be edified as we consider the Lord building his church through the means of grace in our series titled, Why Such Means? As I mentioned, this is the last sermon in our series, sort of the mini, I guess not mini series, it's 10 weeks, but for me it's a mini series, where we do the series on the means of grace and just kind of going through the Belgic Confession, showing why we do what we do, why we have the preaching of the word, why we have the sacraments, how they relate, to one another. And one of the places, or one of the passages I wanted to include, and I thought it'd be wise and up here, is in John 1, where you have the correlation between the incarnate Word of God, and you think of the true Word of God, that's the preached Word of God. And so when, when we come together and we think about the Word of God, it, it's tempting on the one hand to view the Scriptures almost as a superstitious thing, that you know, the Scriptures themselves have an intrinsic power, kind of like the sacraments. Now, obviously, the Lord works through these means. There is a power that uh, is coming through them, but we shouldn't be looking to the Scriptures. We shouldn't be looking to the sacraments, ultimately, for our life. We need to look to what's beyond it, which, again, I call to your attention one of the unique things about Reformed worship in Reformed churches is when you look at them, you will see the pulpit in the middle. Now, unfortunately, we can think that that's an attempt to elevate the minister, and maybe in some situations, unfortunately, that happens where we look to the minister for life. But it's really because we want to emphasize the Word of God, and the Word is life. And so how do we ultimately see, then, the Scriptures, the preaching of the Word tied to Christ, and and the significance of Christ being called the Word of God, the incarnate Word. So as we look at this, we'll see first, uh, all things are sustained in him, where we know who Christ is. We know that our some are established in him, knowing that it's not all, and established in grace and truth, when we think about the significance of the gospel of Christ. And so as we look at this, uh, let's start with all things being sustained in him. Now as we wrap up this series, we want to understand that the Word of God is uh, communicating the true Word, which is Christ Jesus. This is where John and his Gospel, I think, does a rather profound thing of talking about the Word of God and really developing this. Paul talks about the creation coming into existence through Christ. Uh, The Belgic Confession cites Hebrews, talking about this creation coming into existence through Christ, but you don't really know what that means. Uh, it's, it's, it is something that's rather profound, something that I can't fully wrap my mind around how you see the Trinity working in terms of creation, but generally we see how the Father creates life, calls forth life, Christ is a means of life generally, and the Spirit gives the breath of life. So, in a general sense, we can see the Trinity functioning in that way. We think in terms of redemption. The Father chooses his people. Christ redeems those people and and gives himself for those people. The Spirit gives everlasting, true life through regeneration. And so it's important that as we keep these categories, we we don't want to say that when Christ dies, a whole human race is saved. Uh, That's not true. Only those who embrace Christ in faith. And John's prologue gets into this as we see all things being sustained in him. So notice then in the Belgic Confession, Article 10, where the Apostle John says that all things were made by the word which he calls God. So this is a citation of, of John, John 1, where John refers to Christ as the word, the word is God, and the word is from eternity. So what John in his gospel wants us to understand, what the Belgics rightly understanding and submitting to, uh, because again, remember we say our confessions uh, are summarizing the Word of God. They're they're taking the Word of God and drawing the boundaries for discussion, if you will. So we may have some disagreements, but we still want to stay within the boundaries of what those confessions say. For instance, if I stood up here and said, Christ is not the second person of the Trinity. That would clearly be outside the boundaries of the confession. That that would be heresy, unorthodox, that would not be true. And so that's why we have these confessions, and we should be aware uh, generally with with what they're teaching us and what they're telling us. And so the, the confession wants us to understand that while Christ takes on the flesh and things are sustained in Christ, he is still God. It's from all eternity. And so it's uh, not really the Word of God that does this in the sense of the Scriptures, but it's Christ who's doing this as the Incarnate Word. So when we look at this this Gospel, and this Gospel is calling us to consider who the Word is. So notice right in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice then you skip down to one verse 14, another significant Uh, Verse, and and I really wish English translations would would change it. Where you have in 1 verse 14 where it says, And the word became flesh, and where it says, And dwelt among us, which is true, that's a true statement, but the literal Greek is tabernacled, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So at this point, we, we think of Christ as being like the tabernacle. So he's not just sustaining us in the sense that he's just kind of pulling strings like a puppet master, but we think of Christ actually walking among us like the tabernacle in the wilderness, that it's truly God dwelling in the presence of his people. And so John, in terms of understanding who Christ is as our Redeemer, as our Sustainer, uh, this is not just someone who claims the status of God. This is God who has taken on the flesh, truly the full glory of God walking on this earth in the midst of his people. Now we say, well, why is this so important? Why, what does this have to really do with the Word? Well, notice that as we just sort of walk through this just just quickly, notice in verse one, the Word was God, and so John wants us to understand again, this is not someone who has become uh, the second person of the Trinity, or the Son of God. This is God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And so this is telling us that Christ was not created. This is an ancient heresy. Basically, the Father's lonely. He desires to have a son, so he creates a son before uh, the foundations of the world, and so Christ becomes a first creation. Well, John's telling us that's not the case. Christ has always been, from all eternity, Verse 3, we have this first creation being made through him. So we're we're learning that he's he's the action of God. Uh, When the Father speaks, there's a commands that go forth. It's Christ who's the action of this, making this happen, uh, truly creating and sustaining life. Skipping down to verse 10, again, just skipping through these verses. We notice in verse 10, that he was in the world, so he's tabernacling. The world's made through him. And the irony is that as the world is made through Christ, it does not know him. So this tells us that it's not the whole human race that's saved through Christ. Some who know Christ, some who do not know Christ. We we don't know why at this point in in the prologue or the beginning of of John's gospel, but we know that that's the case. Uh, We know his own people rejected him. Uh, we go on then in, in verse 12. We have that all who did receive him, who believed his name, he, call, he has the right to be called children of God. So this means that those who profess Christ to be Redeemer, Savior, uh, the agent of redemption, the action of God, the one who secures true life, are those who can know that they are saved, Right? And so it's important because people say, well, a Calvinist, if a Calvinist is consistent, you never know if you're really saved. Well, we say if you believe in Christ and have faith in Christ, then you have assurance that Christ is your Christ. Proceed, believe, and and go forward in life as if that true is truth. It's what God reveals as truth. So believe it is true. Verse 18, Uh, we have there the explicit reference that he is the only God. He is at the Father's side, and and it is the Father who has made him known, and Christ has made the Father known. So you have in Christ how we know the Trinitarian God. And and again, knowing something, when you're looking at John's Gospel, taking that Hebrew language, it's not just knowing something rationally, uh, by persuasion, it's knowing something as if it's truth because it orient[s] who you are. So, in terms of of this sustaining, they say, "Okay, so we walk through this. We see this word as God. Uh, we we see how we can be tied to this word. But how is it really sustaining us? What what does this really mean?" Well, the word in the in the Greek is logos, which I'm maybe you're not familiar with what this means, but longos is more than just communicating a message. And so again, this is where it becomes somewhat challenging to bring this into English, uh, because we think of word, we, we just think of speech, right? We, we think of sentences, we, we think of propositions strung together, and then think about how to grammatically arrange them properly so that they communicate things so we all understand what's being communicated. But, but the, the logos in, in Greek is something more. It's more about the, the logic, the, the mechanics. It's sort of the word, but it's also like the blueprint of things. Uh, so, for instance, when you take the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in Proverbs 8, verse 22, that there you have the language of wisdom being present with God, the, the nature of this logos and, and what it means and this wisdom of God. It's the action of God. And so it's not that God just creates something. I don't know if you've ever done a project without plans. And I've done this on more than one occasion. Where you do a project without plans, and then you sort of fabricate it as you fabricate it, and you don't really know what the end result's going to be, and you hope that it comes together at some point. The point of Proverbs 8 is that's not how God created the world. Uh, so what I'm suggesting is not creating the image of God. How God creates is he knows the end product. Uh, his wisdom is present throughout the whole thing. So when when we come into the prologue of John, that this notion of Christ and who he is, that, that he's, he's the action of God, he's a manifestation of God's power because it's God himself. He brought in the first creation. He's the one who brings in the new creation. So now we we start building on what we've seen, say, in Ezekiel 37, the valley of the the dry bones. We can understand the the power of the prophet speaking the word of God. It's not because a prophet has an intrinsic power. It's not that the prophet can manipulate God. It's because the the Logos The second person of the Trinity, God himself, the Trinitarian God, works through us. The Father has chosen his people. The Word goes forth, recreating and and bringing forth new life. The Spirit then regenerates and gives us life through the Word. And so you're seeing in the Valley of of, of Dry Bones exactly what the Lord is doing, that it's the Lord who's cultivating life. And so we may say, well, why is this, this so important and so significant? Well, when we read Genesis 1, as this refers back to that, we have the nothingness that was there, the command, and then there's something. And so you're seeing the power of God overcoming the impossibility of creation. Proverbs telling us that it's all by the wisdom of God. So it's not God sort of starting a project and kind of figuring out how it's going to go along the way. But it's God knowing exactly the end point, how it's all going to transpire, fabricating it all in his wisdom and power by his word. And so the word speaking, uh, the word going forth communicates an intrinsic power, as we find in 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word, right? So it's right there in the beginning when there was nothing before history, but going on with the identity of him being in the beginning with God, all things made through him is underscoring that reality, that the very wisdom of God is manifested. As the word of God goes forth, it's Christ who sustains, calls to life his people and and bringing forth this life that, that is beyond this age, literally. And so we know then Not only does this creation come into being, a new creation come into being through the word, but we also know that we are uh, those who are sustained by this word. Going on then, knowing that some are established in him. This is where you look at the prologue, and, and you might wonder if that's really true. Because if you believe, and as you believe, you become children of God, doesn't that mean that the whole world would eventually come to this persuasion. Is that what's going on? Well, what we find is that with this word and, and this son being established in him, the Belgian Confession also wants us to understand the reality, that it's the Spirit who bears witness to us. So God's not abstracted from his word, right? We can think of the word being the word, and then there's God. What John's doing is, showing how Christ is tied to the message of the gospel, that the message of the gospel is is, is filled with Christ. If, if we're not preaching Christ, we're not preaching the gospel. And, and so the Belgic wants us to understand that it's the Holy Spirit that's bearing witness and at work with us. When, when we talk about the scriptures, right, what, what does it say? The Spirit bears witness. And even the blind can see these things coming to fruition. In other words, the Scripture validates its own truthfulness. So it's not that there's a word of promise that's hypothetical and unfulfilled, and then there's some other word or some other thing. The point that John's making here is the very first creation that came into being is this new creation and redemption that's manifesting itself. So how do we know this? Well, we go back to this prologue. Look at verse 12. We find, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is so important. Not only for Calvinism, but in terms of where we are in the Christian life. You now you think of James, for instance, where James talks about anointing individuals. now. Obviously, this is a controversial passage. I wouldn't appeal to this passage as a definitive proof for something. When you think of an anointing, uh, you think of that as testimony of the Spirit being present. And so in James' day, for instance, you can have individuals, realistically, who are in the synagogue, who chanted crucify him. Right? We, we, we fail to understand how close this is to that event. Now, can you imagine being on your deathbed knowing that you're in Pilate's courtroom chanting crucify him and now you're going to meet Christ and it's a definitive meeting. There's no chance to take back what you've done. You're going to probably doubt a little bit. Is the work of Christ sufficient? Is Christ going to be angry? Is Christ going to let me into his kingdom? Is, is, Is his work truly... Full enough to take away that sin and, and trying to come to grips with the reality of it. So and there's that prescription, that's how I understand that anointing. It's the minister coming over saying, go meet your Lord, stop fighting it, and understand that the work of Christ covers even that sin. So meet your Lord. Look forward to that encounter as you pass from this age to the age to come. So when you look at 1, verse 12, we can say, well, how do I know if Christ is my Christ? Well, John tells us, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe he's the one sent by God? Do you believe he is your Redeemer? Well, John's telling us, well, then believe he is your Christ. He's not someone else's Christ. As the gospel goes forth, you are called to that one incarnate word who has redeemed. So the incarnate word is not abstracted from the preached word. They're working together. Now when we hear this, we can say, well, does this mean that every single individual then is going to be saved? And This is radical universalism. Well, this is a lot like Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 that we've used for our assurance of pardon in the morning. You have in Matthew 11, verse 28, what does Christ say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? My burden is light, my yoke is easy. And so Christ is calling the crowd to come to him. But what does he do prior to this? He prays to the Father, hey, Father, Thank you for revealing this to the simple. In other words, not to the wise and the learned, the Pharisees, but to the simple, right? To us, (laughs) who have a childlike faith, who say, I don't really understand all the intricacies of the Trinity and and Jesus Christ, but I know that he is my Redeemer, and I respond in faith, right? So there's the, the call for people to come, but the only people who come are the ones that the Father has chosen, the Spirit has worked through the preached word, and they come to faith, which is what we find in John's gospel as well, because we go on in verse 13. Now, we're going to find Christ expounding verse 13 more in John chapter 3 uh, when he interacts with Nicodemus, but right here we have the declaration that we're not born of blood, we're not born by the will of the flesh. We're not born by the will of man. In other words, we we can't force ourselves to believe. This is something that happens in the power and by the grace of God, that the incarnate word gives new life to us as he has um, brought forth a creation, so he's bringing forth his new creation. Now, we may say, well, this sounds a little tyrannical, because how do I know if I'm elect? Well, this is where we go back to verse 12, don't we? Uh, Because now we have the assurance, if I don't believe, or if I believe in Christ, why do I believe in Christ? Well, the Father wanted me. Jesus Christ has redeemed me. The Holy Spirit has given me new life, and this is why I make this profession. And so instead of it being something that chips away at us, it should give us further assurance. This testifies to the reality the Trinitarian God actually wants his people. The incarnate word has come to secure his people as he takes on the flesh. The preaching of the gospel that goes forth, holding forth this incarnate word. As we believe the word of God, we are taking hold of the true incarnate word. Notice then as we go on, we think more about verse 12. The ones who receive him this is basically holding something without force. It's it's something, again, that's, that's passive. We, we hear the gospel and say, yes, this is true. Believed, this is exercising faith. Given the right. Think about that. The, think about the, the profound statement there. Believed in his name, gave the right to become children of God. And unfortunately, in our culture, we, we've lost sight of this. But what this is basically saying is if, You're a nobody, and and you're a slave, like like you can think of Eliezer of Damascus, for instance. We could use that as an example. Where Abram says to the father or to God, Can I just take Eliezer of Damascus, make him a child, and then he could be the heir of the promise, right? That's that's the out. Then I don't have to walk by faith. And so what's happening there is you're taking your slave who has no rights, right? So a slave, like we heard with Hagar this morning, you can discard them, you can send them away. In the Roman world, you can have them executed, beaten and prison for a variety of reasons, and they have no appeal. But when you move from being a slave to a child, now you have rights. You, you have something of, of a legal standing. That's what John's driving home, that that we're not just tolerated individuals who have been redeemed, but as we receive and believe Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit being informed and recreated by the incarnate Word who brings true life, we move to the status of adoption. This is right. I don't necessarily think everything John Murray says is helpful, but I think it's very helpful when John Murray talks about adoption. He says we have to think of adoption as moving from the courtroom to the family room. So it's, it's not just we have a one-time declaration, a one-time pass, we're free to go, don't mess up again. We're moved into the family room where we move from not only being declared righteous, but actually having fellowship with God. We, we, we have rights in, in terms of this kingdom, rights in terms of Christ. And so as a, the word of God goes forth recreating us, this is the reality of this transfer. We move to a people who are outsiders, nobodies, to those who are brought into the kingdom of God informed formed by the grace of God. Now, as we go on and we set the tone of that, where somebody is going to really take you and try and establish this universal redemption is in verse 9, where it says, A true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Well, when, when we hear that, we basically already went through that. Uh, that, yes, this is true, that there is a true light. It does give light. Why does he use the language of everyone? Well, because it's not going just to the Jewish people or the Jewish nation. Is going out to the Gentiles. His own people are not going to receive him, as we find in verse 11. And so the reality in verse 9 is where we can say, well, how do I know if I have this blessing? I'm a Gentile. I'm not tied to Abraham. Well, verse 9 is saying, no. The intention of this kingdom is to go out to the world. It is to be an international kingdom. The qualification is everyone who believes in him is going to have this life. How does one come to believe? Well, by the power of the Holy Spirit as one is informed by the Incarnate Word, how God has worked this out. And so the assurance then is that the Word of God is truly going to establish. It's going to establish us as adopted heirs, co-heirs with Christ Jesus. We're going to have life as a preaching of the gospel goes forth, here's a reality that we are joined to the incarnate word. The action of God is at work within us. That's what's cultivated new life. So we say, okay, well, what about the grace and truth? What, what does this mean? Well, we go on, we look at verses 14 through 18. Remember what we've learned about the word. The word is a power of creation, first creation, Word is the power of the new creation. Word is the wisdom of God. And so when, when we think about the, these declarations of the engineering feats of God, God being the great architect and how Christ was a means of carrying out this plan. Now this is why as Reformed people we see the word as being primary. Uh, it's tied to the incarnate word. It's that word going forth. Uh, it's the Word of Christ, the power of Christ that's manifest. The sacraments visibly present this reality. It's the Word of Christ that fundamentally is a primary means that God works through. And yes, the sacraments are a means of grace, a means of growth, but we say that the Word is what goes forward, and then the sacraments are those that can only be administered with the Word. So you can have the Word without the sacraments, but you can't have the sacraments without the Word in Reformed theology because we see the word as being primary. Going on then, we look at what Article 10 of the Belgic Confession is teaching us, uh, that we have this uh, assurance that he's the one who's assumed our nature, taken on our nature. Uh, This is something that Paul certainly plays on and and drives home as significant. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, with the Corinthian church denying the physical resurrection of Christ. Christ is not raised in glorified flesh, well, we're, we're in a world of hurt, aren't we? Because that means that, that there is no flesh that can dwell in the domain and glory of heaven uh, because that would mean that it's just not possible. And Paul's point is that now that Christ has been raised in the glorified flesh, it means that our flesh in its full glory can dine in the presence of God and come to that heavenly banquet table. This is where now when we go back to the prologue, and I made reference to John 1, verse 14, well, we come back to this. And as I mentioned, it's not that the word dwelt among us when it became flesh, but it tabernacled amongst us. Now this is an important point, because when Israel sojourns in the wilderness, the tabernacle is a visible presentation of God dwelling in the midst of his people. It's a portable temple. And when Moses goes in and meets with God, you have the glory cloud descending, showing that God is present there with his prophet. And there's something that's assuring because it's really God guiding the prophet. And so when we say, well, what is our tabernacle? Well, this is what John is telling us. As a wilderness people who sojourn, Christ Jesus was her tabernacle who dwelt among us. Uh, It's the fullness of God. He's a revelation of God, that the fullness of everything of what God is, is in the person of Christ as a God man who walks among us. So when we think about the implications of this, we can say, well, this is something that's for Israel. It's something for their history. Yes, we know that the light goes out and it's a true light that comes into the world and it's international, but. John 1, verse 14, we're out, is what we can think as Gentiles. But notice how John counteracts that in a subtle way. So we turn, skip down uh, to verse 16 and 17. So verse 15 is uh, the significance of John the Baptist being the forerunner, preparing the way for Christ. Verses 16 and 17, we find that we have received grace upon grace, so this is telling us that we receive one blessing on top of another is a way of bringing this into English. So it's it's receiving a blessing, but it's receiving another blessing on top of that blessing. That, you know, the, the Christmas present was great, but what's inside the present is even better. Is sort of the implication of this. And so when, when we think about this blessing upon blessing, the implication is, yes, God blesses people by having a tabernacle. That's what I'd argue. So there, there is a blessing where God really dwells with his people. That's great. Gives them a prophet, gives them the word, gives them the promise, gives them the, the word that promises the incarnate word. But the blessing on top of that is the fulfillment of Jesus Christ entering into history. The word of God that not only brings in the new creation, but confirms the word that the prophet has said. is the action of God securing the new creation, the new redemption that was promised. And so that's a grace upon grace. Going on then, verse 17. The law or the instruction was given through Moses. Again, law, I think Torah, instruction, five books of Moses, was given through Moses, grace and truth, Came through Jesus Christ. Now this isn't manif- or this isn't saying that Moses was a flop. Uh, I mean, you, you read of the call of Moses in Exodus 3. Moses doesn't want to do that call, and, and anyone who understands the implication of that call in their right mind wouldn't want to do that call. Uh somebody would want to rush into that is not someone you would want as a prophet. Moses basically saying to the Lord, I like my head. Between my shoulders, attached to my neck. I don't want to be fed to ants. I don't want to die a miserable death. I think we'll just let me tend to sheep out here in the wilderness, which isn't a great existence, but it's better than going to Pharaoh and facing the torture and the fate that I'm going to face, right? Exodus 3 is basically what's going through Moses' mind. I don't want to go there. It's going to be miserable. And the Lord gives him the assurance that the Lord is going to be with him. So with, with Moses, there is something that's manifested, isn't there? That The Lord is instructing us. The Lord is bringing us his word. Uh, the Lord does bring his people out of a land of slavery. The Lord does give the promise. Uh, we have Israel failing in the land miserably. But nevertheless, Moses is not being challenged here as being inferior, being well inferior in the sense of a failure or one that's insignificant. Moses is significant, but clearly he's inferior to the substance of the promise. So not inferior in the sense of bringing the word. He certainly brings the word of God, but he's not the word of God. And so this is what the Belgic Confession is telling us. If God gives a promise without teeth, right? If he says, I'm going to bring you into a land, I'm going to model heaven, I'm going to show that you really need a Redeemer, you're not going to do well. So Moses said to Israel, you're going to end in exile, but I'm going to come and I will shepherd my people. Well, if the Lord never sends a shepherd to confirm the word that Moses brings, then the Lord's a failure, right? He, he doesn't confirm what he has said. This is what the Belgian Confession is teaching us. Even the blind can see these fulfillments. And so what John's telling us is Jesus Christ is the one to whom we look, not to Moses. Moses brings the word that's tied to the incarnate word because it is a word that comes from God. He is a legitimate prophet called by God. He brings a true word of God, but he doesn't establish the grace and truth that only comes in Jesus Christ. Moses does not offer himself Moses himself ends up outside the land of Canaan because of failure. Christ is the one who goes to the cross, faces death, emerges triumphant. This is why in verse 18, it becomes then that significant conclusion to this prologue. Looking upon Christ is seeing the glory of God. Looking upon Christ is seeing the intention of God looking upon Christ as seeing uh, the recreative power of God that the prophets promised, and only Christ confirms. And so when we talk then about Scripture, and we talk about Christ being the incarnate Word, how can we fundamentally then see that connection? Well, it's connected because Christ, the promised Word, is the one who brings in the first creation. Christ is promised as Redeemer. So the word that the prophets bring is a word that must be confirmed through or in Jesus Christ. He has to take on the flesh. He has to bring in the new creation. Christ entering history brings in the new creation. So when we think then of the preaching of the gospel. We can't think of the preaching of the gospel as abstracted, from Christ, I mean, this is part of if you're familiar in church history, fourth century through about the eighth century, you have the Donatist controversy, where you have the Donatists talking about the moral rigor of the minister, and in order for the word to be effective, the minister must be holy enough to minister this word. Well, the the reality is that's that's not always the case. I mean, we I call the attention, we we've seen. Ministers depart the faith and, and go away. Does that mean uh, that the gospel they preach or the sacraments they administered failed? Well, no, because of the power that's behind the word, the power that's behind the sacraments. And so it's not that we just want to say, well, if ministers are apostate, who cares? That's not a big deal. Obviously, that's a big deal. We don't want to see people apostatize from the faith. But the reality is that it shouldn't rattle our faith in the sense that God's intended accomplishment fails because it is the incarnate Word that works through the gospel. It's the incarnate Word that continues to cultivate life. When we are informed and believe the gospel of Christ, we take hold of Christ in his glory and all the distinct blessings of Christ and who we are. In Him, So let us not then see the scriptures as merely another book. Let us not look upon the scriptures uh, superstitiously, just like with the sacraments as we were reminded. Let us see the God who is behind uh, these realities. And let us see these as the means that God has given us to know who he is, his intentions for us, who we are as his redeemed. And let us continue then to cling to our Savior and our Redeemer as we sojourn under the sun, being informed by the incarnate Word of God through His means of grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is e.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.